Welcome to the Leaders in Payments podcast, where we talk to C-level leaders from across the payments landscape. We'll be discussing the products and services that impact the payment space today, as well as trends and predictions for the future of payments. We will also hear stories from our guests about their journeys to the top. Hi, I'm your host, Greg Myers, and this is episode 11 of the Leaders in Payments podcast. This week, my special guest is Martin Sweeney, the CEO of Ravelin. Martin talks in detail about Ravelin's fraud solution, about their global customer set, and provides some great insights about PSD2 and 3D Secure. He also talks about why the U.S. market is so attractive for Ravelin. So let's get started. Hi, Martin. Thank you for being here, and welcome to the Leaders in Payments podcast. Ah, pleasure. Thank you for having me. Great. So tell the audience a little bit about yourself, maybe where you're from, where you grew up, went to school, a few things like that. Yeah. So um, my name is Martin Sweeney. I'm from the UK. I grew up in the northwest of the UK near a little place called Liverpool, which you may have heard of. And I currently live in London, which is where our company is based. Okay, great. So let's talk about the company, Ravelin, a little bit. Tell the audience exactly what you do. So we do fraud detection for online merchants, particularly those who are looking to grow as fast as possible with as little risk as possible and with the best customer experience possible. We do that by taking data from merchants about their customers and making educated predictions about who is going to be a fraudster and who is not, and enforcing business policy in terms of service as well to make sure that the whole payments and revenue assurance piece is as smooth as possible and as efficient as possible. And the end result is that we deliver as higher possible growth figure with low false positives, which is when you make a mistake in your prediction, and low fraud numbers at the end of the day. And really, this is transformative for our merchants, making a huge difference to the companies that we work with and helping them grow their businesses even more. So we work with a a wide variety of merchants. They tend to be the bigger merchants. They tend to be sort of international. Many of our merchants trade in north of 20 or 30 different countries. And we have a team here in London of about 65 people. And then around the world, we've got about another 10 or I think maybe 15 these days, 15 remote employees around the world. So we service every single market in the world, but we operate primarily in Europe. And that's where our operations are based, but we service our clients internationally. And that's a real core component for us. Great. Yeah. And, you know, when I interview CEOs for this show, you know, and I ask them about, you know, what are the trends in the future? Almost all of them talk about fraud detection and, you know, the value that that, you know, provides and how, you know, that's a great area of growth. So I think you're in a great market. Sure. Well, it's a slight perverse thing because we don't want there to be fraud. And so sadly, we're in the environment where actually fraud is growing faster than the underlying rate of e-commerce. It's obviously different in different markets, but we see the trade-off between convenience and conversion having the proportionate trade-off in increased fraud and risk. So what we help people do is to find the third way. Instead of just accepting poor conversion or high risk, we offer you good conversion and low risk. That's fundamentally where we are. And we think that whichever version of the future comes first, fraud is going to be a big part of that. And we're confident that for merchants, having the ability to manage their risk effectively and flexibly is going to be a crucial way to compete in the future. Absolutely. Talk a little bit. I read about on your website that the company was born out of a taxi app business. So maybe tell that story. 
Yeah, so you know, it's right the way through our DNA, less the taxi specific, but more the fact that we used to be merchants ourselves. And I think that's really important because we understand fundamentally the businesses that we work with. What it means is that we really understand what you're trying to do. And I think the taxi app business is a quite unique way of starting. So when we were in taxi apps, this is sort of 2010, we were competing with this little company called Uber. Uh, it's actually Uber Cab at the time. And, and actually, it was a, a totally wide open market. And what we were doing at the time was quite novel for apps, which was to, to take payments and allow people to book taxis and pay for them in real time. And e-commerce pre the smartphone revolution has not really changed a huge amount. You know, it's all very desktop based. It was primarily airlines, hotels, retail e-commerce and some services. And actually the fraud profile in that environment hadn't changed a bunch either. Now, actually, what we saw with the start of the smartphone revolution is that all the people like ourselves who are producing these mobile apps were all about user experience. We were conversion mad. So we would optimize every single page, every single view, every single button, every single form field to understand if we add that or remove that, what is the proportional increase or decrease in our traffic? Because when you're in the growth stage of your company, you're looking to spend on marketing and you're looking to get those people through the funnel as efficiently as possible. And in the taxi app space, we were no exception to that. So really when we thought about fraud and when we understood how it would impact our business, we always came at it from a conversion point of view first. So if you think about you've designed this app, you've made this wonderful, beautiful experience, you've essentially crafted a Ferrari. This is your Ferrari. And then if you hitch a trailer to the back of your Ferrari, which is the traditional way of managing fraud with rules engines and manual review teams and lots of high touch intervention, it's going to massively impede the performance of this beautiful Ferrari you've spent years and millions of bucks creating. So actually what we would do is to create the perfect, most symbiotic fraud tool to help you with that. And the nice thing about taxi apps is that in many ways, they sort of exemplified the future of e-commerce, which is a bit of a, a mind bender, but let's just go through it. So it was all about high volume, real time and low margin. Those are the big three characteristics that we were exploring in the taxi app space. So taxi apps only really work at scale. So you've got to have millions of orders flowing through every year. Low margin, you are in the market where you're taking a, a sort of 20 or 15% cut of every order. And after all your fees and taxes, your margin is probably sub 10%, which is quite low margin, actually. And so the cost of fraud is disproportionate to those businesses, especially once you consider the average transaction value of a fraudulent transaction is sometimes more than double the normal average transaction value. So it can take you I don't know, 20 orders to pay off one fraudulent order. So the, the cost of fraud is massive in the low margin industries. And then real time is kind of the future of e-commerce. So whether you're selling services like taxi apps or food delivery or digital goods or any other sort of service, or even when you're selling retail physical goods through a, a warehousing process, everyone's going to real time. It's all about moving towards same day delivery, towards real time. You know, who wants to wait three days for your stuff to arrive? Nobody. That's not how you compete in the modern world. So when we think back to what we were doing in taxi apps, starting out life in this low margin, real time, high volume environment, actually we see all those characteristics playing out in every industry and e-commerce that we live in today. So everyone is pushing for real time. Everyone is competing and that often means lower margins and high volume is where everyone makes the money when you make lower margins. So this is a really good place to set us up. And when we think about the company today, the kind of 
merchant first understanding from our product and from our relationship point of view means that we really get our customers and we work incredibly closely incredibly strongly with our customers together rather than you know having a sort of vendor supplier esque relationship which can be a bit too transactional this is a hugely important part of our customers businesses we are making not quite life and death, but you know, some big decisions on behalf of our clients and which of their customers can use the service or not. So they really have to trust us and we really have to know what their business is trying to do to deliver it for them. So that's the background. That's why I think it's so compelling to have that background in the company today. Sure, absolutely. It makes a lot of sense. Let's talk a little bit about the PSD2, which I believe, if I have my facts right, came into effect for e-commerce in September of last year. There's a lot of acronyms in there. Maybe explain that through the lens of you know what you do and your solutions, and then maybe also for our U.S. merchants, what that sort of effect is for e-commerce operations here. Sure. Okay. So it's not actually in effect yet. There was a delay because of the complexity of delivery, because payments is a very complex field and there's lots of different moving parts. And actually delivering the infrastructure to support that legislation turned out to be way more complex than the regulators initially thought. So actually, it's coming into force on the 31st of December this year, 2020, although I suspect there may be a further delay on that, given the environment we're in at the moment. So PSD2 essentially means there's two big parts to it. One is open banking which I'm not going to talk about. The other is greater security and less fraud. So let's just rewind a few steps and go back to how payments work. In the EU or in parts of the EU, when you pay in store, you do chip and pin. So you put your card into a machine and then you enter your pin and then the payment is authorized if you get the pin right. And if you get the pin right, that means your bank knows it's you who's paying. And so if there's any fraud, it's the bank who pays for that fraud. When you think about online payments, it works a little different. So when you go to pay with your card online, there is no chip and pin, right? You, can't, you don't enter your pin onto a website. You've got to, if you want to authenticate, so identify yourself to your bank to prove it's really you, the cardholder, there's something called 3D Secure. And 3D Secure is a, a way of, like I say, proving yourself to your bank to say that I am the real cardholder. And you know, it, it sort of works, apart from sort of isn't really good enough. So it turns out that when you use 3D Secure, which you may not know the term, but you will certainly know the interface as it pops up an iframe or uh, pops up a window or opens an iframe inside your browser or on your phone. And then it asks you to enter your password. Maybe it texted you or SMSed you a code and you have to enter the six digits from the SMS. It turns out, looking at the data, that for all of the users that use 3D Secure, about 20% of them fail to authenticate. And that's a massive number. Imagine going through the conversion journey of a merchant and saying, hey, right at the end of your user flow, we're going to put in something that means that 20% of the users that you've acquired into your business are not going to be able to buy the services that you're selling or the goods you're selling. I mean, that's crazy, right? So actually 3D Secure is bad for business and they're improving it. There's new versions out there that are better, but fundamentally, this is software designed by banks that is not very consumer-friendly. So what we say is, you know, back to my original proposition, which is either you accept poor conversion or you accept lots of fraud, you know, why not have a third way? So we deliver that third way. This is great conversion and low fraud because we give you the best of both. Now, what PSD2 does is it changes the whole landscape. It says, hey guys, you know that equation you have right now of using 3D Secure on only your highest risk customers? Well, we're going to tear that up. We're going to say that you now have to use 3D Secure on every transaction. Stunned silence from merchants yeah. around the world. Now, this is huge. So you're telling me that I have to take my Ferrari and hook up a horse trailer to the back of it 
because the regulators are telling me to. I mean, this is insane. So when the regulators came out with their drafts for this new regulation, they got a lot of pushback from industry and said, guys, this is insane. You're going to kill us. This is going to halve the GDP of the internet. It's going to be really bad for everybody. Can you reconsider? So they reconsidered. They came back and they came back with this thing called an exemption. So you can think of this very high level as saying, you have to use 3D Secure on every transaction unless, drumroll, unless you're good at fraud detection. And so what that means is that for all those merchants out there, all those merchants out there who are concerned about their users and their conversion, those guys can invest in fraud detection technology to make educated decisions about which customers are high risk and which are low risk. And if you think they're low risk, then you can apply for an exemption to say, I don't want to use 3D Secure on this transaction. Now, there's lots of caveats. There's lots of complexities in this field, but broadly, that's the picture here. PSD2 means more 3D Secure unless you have a good reason to not use it. And the best good reason is because you're good at fraud detection. Okay, great. So where does the SCA fall into that? So SCA is 3D Secure. So SCA is a definite strong customer authentication. When you are a regulator, you don't like using proprietary technologies. You want to put in the law broad brush strokes about how you think things should be implemented. So regulators don't say use that technology because that would be anti-competitive. Instead, they talk about the underlying principles of that technology. And so they say authentication, strong customer authentication means actually you have to authenticate yourself with two out of three factors. And in practice for online card payments, that means 3D secure. Okay, makes sense. You know, in the U.S., EMV is a relatively recent initiative. In fact, at the gas pumps, it's really recent. But, you know, in implementing that, obviously, we've seen fraud move online. You know, my understanding is that you guys are moving into the U.S. market. Maybe talk about that a little bit, if EMV had anything to do with that, or, you know, talk about your growth here in the U.S. and what your plans are there. Mm, yeah, so you're absolutely right that when you put in EMV or chip and pin, depending on how you want to brand it, it absolutely works in the real world. It turns fraudsters away from you know the gas pump or the in-store version, and it moves them onto the wild west of online card not present transactions. So what we saw in, in Europe about you know, coming up to 10 years ago is that the big shift in fraud was to online. And the US is now on that same journey. Fraud online in the US is booming. And, uh, you know, that's a pretty attractive target for someone like us. We think we can make a huge difference to people in the industry, merchants and payment service providers to say, hey, there is an alternative. And in the US, the adoption of the uh, 3D secure technology by the issuing banks has been somewhat lower than in the EU. And I think in the EU, you tend for, let's take the UK as an example. You know, we have here nine big banks who represent over 95% of cardholders in the UK have one, have an account with one of the nine big banks. And so it doesn't take much for, you know, nine companies, but nine fairly well run big banks to actually implement technology. Now in the US, the picture is a little bit more fractured. You tend, there's many more, many more banks and the penetration of the big five is much lower than it is in Central Europe. So when you consider rolling out a technology that has a cost to implement and is relatively complex and consider all of the different banks and card providers across the US, actually it's been quite hard to roll that out, as Visa and EMV Co. have found. So the US, I think, is a good opportunity. It does mean that, you know, consider in Europe, what we recommend is either for each transaction, yes, no, maybe. 
you know, should we accept that transaction? Should we not? Should we just drop it on the floor? Or maybe that's 3D secure. Now in the US, the equation is slightly different because what we do is we take the card and we look up if it's capable of 3D secure. So is the issuing bank capable of implementing or have they implemented? Are they capable of performing an authentication on the card? If yes, then we would recommend it. But actually, it just means your calculation of what to do in that situation gets just a little bit more complex because if you know the bank doesn't support it or that this particular customer is very unlikely to complete it, then you're kind of back to just your yes, no, rather than your yes, no, maybe. So the US is a fascinating opportunity from a sort of payments and authentication rollout point of view. But we also think that because many, many of our existing clients already trade in the US and we have many customers in the US already. Our expansion there is, I think, a very logical extension of the business plan so far. And we've been extremely pleased with the traction. We've got some amazing deals and some wonderful customers who we're going to be talking about in the next couple of months as we release those press releases and start talking publicly about who we're working with there. Great. So as with the payments industry as a whole, it's very competitive and I'm sure in your space it is as well. So talk about what makes your company different than your competitors. So we really pride ourselves on the relationships we have with our customers. I mean, let's take it for granted that we are just better than everyone else. I think we can agree that. But in principle, actually, what that means is that the fraud performance that we deliver is amazing. But more than that, it's about the actual day-to-day relationship we have with our customers. So this is, it's not just a sort of transactional, you provide me the tool, I will use it. I will get better, or you provide me the predictions and I have no say over what happens. Actually, because we're working with connoisseur buyers, experts in their own field, real specialists who get their businesses, what we find is because we've chosen to specialize in that section of the market, you know, the the large enterprise merchants of the world, those guys have expectations around relationships, account management, and performance that we are able to deliver because we are focusing on that segment and because we have been merchants before. And I think that really differentiates us in the market. And then beyond that, we've got some amazing technology, which I can talk about for hours, but broadly means that we have a very different way of spotting fraudsters, visualizing fraudsters. And in the future, we will also be performing the 3D secure authentication ourselves as we roll out into that side of the payments industry. Okay, great. I think we'd be remiss if we didn't touch on what's currently going on in the world today. So maybe tell the audience what Ravelin's doing, you know, to support your employees and your customers during this sort of challenging times we're in. Yeah, well, it's certainly uh, on everyone's minds, right? I and I think you are probably all working from home at the moment, and that places lots of different demands on everyone. You know, we've got our, our families in the office. You might be able to, sorry, in the home office, you might be able to hear my children running around in the background shouting and screaming. So I, I think that is firstly the obvious impact on employees is you can't expect everyone's working routines to stay the same, and so you've got to be flexible. And what we've done well for the past few years at Ravelin is to work from home as a matter of course. So every week we had one day a week mandatory working from home every Wednesday, which meant that all of our systems and all of our technology is already set up for working from home. And I feel we're extremely privileged to be in this position where everyone has laptops, everyone has a home office already, everyone has access to all of the data and systems they need, rather than scrambling around from a sort of desktop-based environment with then having to go through VPNs that no one's used before. We're sort of ahead of the curve. And I think that's One of the, um, you know, we're very lucky as a new tech company to be sort of native to the remote working. So adapting to that has been easy, but I do think the biggest impact on employees is just, you know, working from home and not having the social contact of those around you and having to adapt to a situation where your kids are at home as well. And clearly there's impacts there. So we've done lots of things 
to sort of keep everyone's morale up. You know, little stupid things like we have a, a constantly open video chat where anyone can just drop in and have a cup of coffee together and talk about how their day's going. We have interactive board game nights. We have dog walking channels. If you want to go and walk someone's dog with them remotely, they'll take their camera with you. And all, oh, sorts of, all sorts of stupid things, but it makes a huge difference to everyone's morale. Sure. What about your customers? What are you hearing from them? How has this time changed that? Well, I think the general trend is that, you know, all the cards have been thrown up in the air at once and there's definitely impacts. People have changed their consuming habits and as merchants are feeling that for good or bad. And I think it wouldn't be surprising to say that the merchants who rely on travel would be suffering some because clearly that's happening a lot less. And then beyond that, you have people who are providing goods or services you can consume while sat at home all day, they're doing very well. So, you know, if you're providing video streaming services, video conferencing, education tech for children and schools, gaming in general is booming. And so there's, you know, swings and roundabouts, we would say, and there are winners and losers from this situation. I think then the natural conversation turns to how long it will last and what the long-term effects are going to be. And I think you know, in general, when this all passes and we're all back in the offices, there will be some changes in consumer activity. There may be more of a shift to remote working in general. I think that would be a great thing. There would be maybe less travel in general. Maybe people realize they don't need to fly as much as they may have done already. And we could see changes in the macro environment. I do think there's also a decent risk of there being a, a sort of a recession, a question of how long for, but in recessions, you know, we've found that fraud goes up and there's more attention paid to people's margins as they're looking to to run their businesses slightly more conservatively. So I think there's a bunch of knock-on effects, but I would be very cautious about pretending I have any answers for them. Right, right. And that sort of leads into the next question. Where do you see the fraud industry heading in the next two to three years? Uh, well, I think PSD2 is a, a good sort of indication of things to come. So the role of regulators, if we can just get big picture for a second, the role of regulators is to step in when markets have not been operating efficiently and to, to set direction requirements for the market. And I think in Europe, that's what's happened. They've said that there's too much fraud online. We're setting some benchmarks and some expectations and everyone has to get with the program. So now, Europe has a habit of being a bit heavy-handed with these sort of regulations, and it certainly wouldn't go down well, I think, in, in other places around the world. So I don't think we should all expect to, that PSD2 will land in the US, but I think there's going to be flavors of it. So if you look at Australia, look at Brazil, Canada, South Africa, actually, you can see versions of PSD2 coming. So the new normal is more authentication, but as a result, there will be more people looking to optimize the use of authentication. So I think that's going to be the new normal. Fraud is ever-present and ever-changing. So fraudsters will change their habits in response to the changing regulatory and technological landscape. So I think broadly, 3D Secure is definitely not immune from fraud. Fraudsters are very adept at attacking it. They know exactly what to do and how to get around it. So you can expect that 3D Secure fraud will go up if 3D Secure is more used. And then I think on a big trend that we see a lot of is something called account takeover, which is a function of general poor security across the consumer side of things. Where And I think we would all recognize this of ourselves we reuse passwords. You know, we're not good at password hygiene of using totally unique and simultaneously memorable passwords across all of the services you use. And as a result, if you, let's say, have two or three passwords, if just one of them gets hacked, all of the services that you've used that password on are now vulnerable. And many of those services these days have a card on file. And so it doesn't take much for an attacker to compromise your password from another service, log into a second service using your password and an email combination, and then shop on your account 
benefiting from your from your very good reputation because you've been a great customer for a long time and then they get to ride through all the fraud prevention that didn't know about account takeover so i think if you're in that situation which many are it's not just a fraud problem it's much bigger than that it's reputational data protection issues information security so i think fraud is expanding more and more and the trends i would say are to generally Card not present fraud will evolve. Fraud will find other ways of coming through. And, and fraud as a whole is, is getting bigger. So that, those would be the only high-level trends I would commit to rather than any specific predictions. Sure, great. Well, okay, we're about to wrap up. Any final thoughts for the audience today? I think stay safe, stay home, wash your hands, and this too shall pass. And I'm looking forward to the, the shape of the world on the other side. Yeah, I agree 100%. Well, Martin, thank you so much for your time today. I know your time is very valuable, so I really appreciate you being here. Always happy to talk about the industry. Thank you very much for the time. and A pleasure to, pleasure to be on. Yeah, thank you. And to all you listeners out there, thank you for your time as well. And until the next story. Thank you for joining us this week on the Leaders in Payments podcast. Make sure you visit our website at leadersinpayments.com, where you can subscribe to the show and where you'll find our show notes. If you enjoyed listening, please share on your social channels as well.